I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 16. Let me read this passage for you. As Jesus is talking to his disciples, he said also to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may say, receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Yikes. <laughs> I have a confession to make for you. I, not for you, to you. <laughs> I'm not very good at planning for my future. You know, I, somewhere around 10 years ago, there was this thing called cryptocurrency. Have you ever heard about it? And there, there was the, you know, the, the coin bite, the, the whole thing. And I thought, I'm going to invest 50 bucks in this. And, you know, at that time, you, you could buy $50 worth of, of cryptocurrency for 50 bucks. And uh, I did it. I have no idea where the account is, what the password is, what website I use. It's just gone. So there's probably like a million bucks sitting there. <laughs> so, and I'm not that guy that has invested wisely and is sitting on a huge retirement fund. I've just never been that guy. Uh, and, I, it, you know, at, at my age, I start, you start thinking about, gee, I should have done this, I should have done that. Have I, prepared, have I prepared for the future properly? And that should cause you to wonder whether or not you have. Well, what does it mean? <laughs> what does it even mean to prepare for the future and which future we're we talking about. This is all going to be addressed today. We're looking at a parable that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. It's called the dishonest manager. You're not going to see any internet memes with these verses on it. Nobody's got it written on their napkins. There's no wall hangings that go, oh, the dishonest manager ripped everybody off. You know, it, it's just people don't think about it. it it's hard. It's an obscure little story. It's not taught in children's Sunday school classes. We just don't see it. And it can be really difficult to get the point. But I think, I think if, we, if we do what we normally do here and look at the context of the parable and read it carefully, we much, just might find out that there's some lessons to be learned about preparing for the future here. 
So for the context of chapter 16, at least these first 13 verses, there's a thread running through chapter 15, which we're all familiar with, and the beginning of chapter 16. So Luke 15, I'm just going to spend a few minutes and review this with you. Luke 15 has some very familiar parables. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the prodigal. And all three of those parables have, have, have three things in common. Something or someone is lost, then they're found, and then there's a celebration. So we need to be careful with these three parables. Well, you know, we've talked about them before, but I, I want to refresh. Uh, the lost sheep is found at the end of that parable, but the parable is not about someone who wanders away from church. And, you know, that, that's kind of the context we want to take that parable in. But I got to ask you, do you really think that the angels in heaven celebrate when somebody comes back to do something that they should have been doing anyway? I mean, we got to think context, right? It's not about somebody coming back to church again. The lost sheep parable is about a sinner who comes to repentance. And that says it right at the end. Not a saved person who comes to church. The lost coin, it's the same story. When a woman finds her coin, there's a celebration. And it ends the same way, the angels in heaven celebrating over a repentant sinner. And the prodigal, it, you know, if you take a look at that, it, it, it's the same story again. The whole, this time, instead of the angels in heaven, the whole town celebrates when the son comes home. The son who was dead and now is alive. The son who was lost and is now found. So all of chapter 15, all three parables are about the gospel and about a sinner coming to repentance, about a sinner gaining his place in eternity and assuring his future, his future with Jesus Christ. So, and, and, and in the middle of all that, they're all a warning to the Pharisees. Almost all the parables are about the Pharisees. And so they're warning the Pharisees not to feel so righteous as to ignore the lost or to diminish them. Not to feel so superior because they're among the 99 sheep. They're among the nine coins that the woman has. Or that they're the older brother who remains with the father. So the parables in chapter 15 are about the future, about eternity. And this, this parable in chapter 16 is as well. And I hope to be able to show you. There are three vignettes here. We, have, we, we see the craftiness of the manager in verses 1 through 7. We see a commendation. It's a curious commendation in verse 8. And then we see a caution in verses 9 through 13. Let's take a look at this craftiness. So Jesus also said to the disciples. Prior to this, he was talking to the Pharisees. Now he's talking to the disciples. And it, you know, it's a little bit with a, a, a little bit of a wink and a nudge. You got that, what I was saying to the Pharisees, right? Let, let me give something a little bit deeper. Yeah. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He was literally stealing. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn any account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So literally what he says, he brings him in, and, and if you've ever been in a position of being a supervisor or a boss or something, you know where this conversation is going. 
Yeah, this is what I heard about you. I mean, the decision's already been made. He said, I'm going to give you a chance to explain yourself. And, and then he's going to fire him. And so the, the manager, the, the owner just wants to know what was going on. And in verse 3, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? What am I going to do? Yeah, this is all I know how to do. This is what I've been doing all my life. I'm not strong enough to dig. Doesn't have the physical stature to do that. Too ashamed to beg. Too much pride for that. So he ponders it and he goes, oh, I got it. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Literally saying, so I've got an idea. So that when I lose my job, I can have shelter and food and have somebody to take care of me. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Now watch what happens here. The debtor says, 100 measures of oil. The manager says, okay, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So notice what happens. He gets the debtor to participate. He doesn't say, I'm just going to change it to 50. He says, sit down here, and you just write 50 on there, and I'll sign off on it. So you see what's happening? He's got the debtor in collusion with him. And so this is how he's going to get people to take him into their house. He goes, well, you know, I know what you did that day we changed the bill. I mean, you were the one that changed it, right? And then you forced me to sign it. You know, you're the one who got me in trouble. Maybe that's what's happening. I, I think probably that's it, but we don't know. So the debtor becomes an accomplice in stealing from the owner and is now in the debt moral of the manager. Verse 7, then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He's probably getting a little bit more comfortable with this. And that guy said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And, and so the implication is that this happens over and over and over again that he's done it maybe with a majority, maybe with all of the people that owed his owner. So you got to admit, this guy's pretty crafty. Yeah, I know what to do. I'll get everybody else in debt to me. Then they'll be forced to take care of me. He taps into the greed and the selfishness that he knows that is inherent in people. And he does it for his own personal gain. He does it for his own security going forward. And, and the results of this are really surprising because we see this commendation in verse 8. The, the owner finds out, and it says, he commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So the owner gives this guy a pat on the back. Oh, Good job. I wouldn't have thought of that. There may be a lot of reasons that he did this. You know, we need to take this in the context of an honor-shame culture. So the owner is going to lose face by going back to these guys and say, I need to readjust your bill because my agent, the person I sent you, the person who represents me, lied to you. He could lose clients. I mean, you've seen this sort of thing happen before. There's some confusion at the top. People start staying away. 
On top of that, he'd have to admit that he had a dishonest guy running his operation. (laughs) So he would have lost respect, would have lost honor in the community just for that right there. And at the same time, he realizes this guy's a little bit smarter than I thought he was. You know, maybe, maybe (laughs) he's considering bringing him back. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But that might be a motivation, greed. Maybe he can make me more money. So so the question is, what, what do we do with this story? This is incredible. People have a rough time with it. Most likely, we have a rough time because we're trying to plug Jesus or God in here somewhere. Trying to figure out which one of these is Jesus. And it doesn't work out very well because... There's no one in the story that seems to be the good guy. None of them are. The manager's afraid of losing his livelihood. He literally steals from his boss. All the customers that he goes to are eager to get dishonest discounts. They know what's going on. So they take advantage. And the boss, who at first seems okay, once he finds out what's been done, he, he commends the manager. And he commends him for being so shrewd as to steal in such a fashion from him. It's incredible. There's just no one in here that any of us should use as a model for our behavior. There's no one like Jesus. There's no God figure. There's not even a good guy in here anywhere. The key to the parable comes in the second half of verse 8. Jesus has been relating to the parable to his disciples, and now he stops, and he looks them in the eye, and he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What does he mean by that? The sons of this world are more shrewd. He's talking about the unsaved, unchurched people. And he's saying that dishonest as they may be, they're more prudent, more practical in dealing with the people around them than some believers are. That's sobering. That'll get you thinking. See, this guy, this manager, was preparing for his future. Yes, he was conniving. He was plotting, but he was using everything at his disposal to ensure that he had a place to live and food to eat when it was all done. It was all dishonest. Every bit of it is evil, but the manager knew that. He knew it was evil. Jesus is saying, look around you. Those of you who are following me, look at the world around you. Some of these people are more sensible in using their relationships and the resources of the world than followers of Christ are. And we need to be careful with this. This is not an endorsement to steal and cheat. That's not what's happening. But it is an an encouragement to be wise about things like friends and associates and money, possessions. Here's the main point of the parable. We don't want to be like any of these people. 
What we do want is to understand how things work. What we do want is to understand how things work and use them for the kingdom of God. Ooh. Using the resources of the world for the kingdom of God? Not, not for our own personal gain, but for the sake of the gospel. Now, Jesus makes this really clear in what he says next. And this is where the caution comes from, starting in verse 9. And I tell you, he says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Ooh, <laughs> I struggled with that for months. <laughs> What does he mean? Let me, let me paraphrase. Use the world's money. Use the world's material possessions. Use the world's systems to get acquainted with people who are in the world. To befriend them. To show them that you care. Why? So that when it fails... When the money fails to satisfy, when these systems fail to satisfy, when possessions fail to satisfy, when everything material, everything worldly fails to save, they, those friends you made, may receive you into the eternal dwellings. It's curious phrasing. But what it means here is befriend them with everything you have, so that when everything falls apart around them, they will invite you into their homes, invite you into their lives, and you will invite them into eternity. Ooh. That's difficult to see in here, isn't it? But the encouragement is to use the world's wealth, the world's systems, for the sake of the gospel the development and the growth of the kingdom of God. Not for our own comfort, not for our own security. Use everything at our disposal to prepare people for eternity. And Jesus says, put this to the test. Try it out. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? Can't handle the blessings of God. If you don't understand that it all belongs to him anyway, if, if, if you hoard them, if you try to multiply them, if you try to use them for anything other than his kingdom and his glory, how do you expect to receive the true blessings of peace and joy and the eternal security in Christ and a home with him? And here's the caution. It comes as a little bit of a question. Have you been using your stuff? been using your money, your possessions, your material goods for the sake of the kingdom to advance the gospel? Or have you had other motivations? Dishonest managers certainly did. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Again, everything belongs to God. We're stewards of it. Temporary overseers. 
Can God trust us with what he gives us? Trust us to use it for him rather than try to build a nest egg for ourselves? There's nothing wrong with saving money. There's nothing wrong with preparing for your financial future. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with looking ahead, being prudent. I think God honors that. But if we're trusting in the financial preparations that we made to preserve us, if we're trusting in the things that we surrounded with us to make us happy, to give us peace, I've got to tell you something. We're trusting in things that are going to burn up in the end. I mean, they're not going to be here anymore. Do you think that in heaven somebody's going to go, gee, what was in your 401k? We got a nice house for you if you had a lot there. It's a matter of what's in our hearts. Jesus asking the disciples to examine this. Because in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he kind of wraps that up with, you cannot serve God and money. You know, scriptures tell us that, that money is the root of all evil, don't that, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> it tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. Nothing wrong with money. It's just when you put it in a higher priority in your life than God does, you've got a problem. And the caution here is to be wise about how we plan for the future, to be eternally focused on what our priorities are. Money only offers a temporary feeling of security. And really doesn't offer any security at all. As you know, we were talking earlier about billionaires. <laughs> you know, and I've had the opportunity to meet one or two. And the only thing they're interested in is becoming trillionaires. You know, I want to be a millionaire. And I can already see that if I ever get there, then... I, the next thing I'd want is to be a billionaire. But, you know, we, we get perverted on this stuff. So none of these lessons are immediately clear at the first reading of the parable. It can be kind of confusing until we look at the context. I want to go over this just one more time. And we see how chapter 15 centers on celebrations in heaven that occur when somebody who is lost is found. Then comes this lesson about using money, using relationships and systems wisely and with prudence like unbelievers do, but not for personal gain, but to bring unbelievers into eternity so that when the Lord comes back, they have a home with them. See, it's not about, it's not about personal gain. It's not about riches. It's not about people wandering away. It's not about lost coins. It's not about an unrepentant son. It's not even about trying to figure out the motivation of a large group of evil people in this parable. Brothers and sisters, it's about souls. It's about souls. It's about winning souls for Christ, using the things of the world to harvest souls for Christ. When money... Status, self-interest fail. There we stand with our Bible 
and the answers that they've been looking for all along. Be shrewd, be sensible about what's available to you, but don't be seduced by them. Don't be taken in by them. They're not your goal. They're not our goal. Jesus Christ is. So we see these three vignettes, the craftiness. The the dishonest manager is wise, but only in a worldly way. It's really not doing him any good. He's trying to keep to himself. He's trying to ensure his own future. And he's corrupted others by acting unethically and, and actually causing others to commit a crime. There's just devastation all around here. He thought he was ensuring his future. What he was actually doing was ensuring his doom. Because he wants to spend the rest of his life living in that sin. Then we saw this, this commendation. The great irony here is that the manager's dishonesty is actually commended by the world, by the people around him. And the great tragedy is that the manager is not only allowed to continue living in his sin, he's actually rewarded for it. And then there was this caution. Don't be like that. Don't settle for earthly rewards. They're temporary at best. If you read just a little bit between the lines, you don't have to go too far. The passage tells you that all of the, the, the earthly rewards will ultimately fail. And they will fail. They will fail for each person individually. Each individual will, will eventually face everything he's done. We're all going to have to give an account for what we've done. And so if we put our, our trust in worldly systems, they're going to fail. And our job is to be positioned to lead them into something better, something more permanent, something eternal. One day, everything's going to fail. Every system in the world is going to fail. It's going to falter. One day, the whole world system is going to collapse and Christ will return, but then it's going to be too late to share the gospel. Those who rejected Christ will be lost completely and forever. In the meantime, our job is to understand that it's not about success, not about money, not about possessions, not about status, not about fame, not about popularity, not about anything else, but the souls of those who don't know Jesus Christ. I'm not so good at planning for the future, but I do understand this. My future and yours are in the hands of the Lord. He knows our days, when as yet there was not one of them. And I I know for many of you, and you know about me, the Lord has blessed Kelly and I mightily. And now, it's up to me, it's up to you, what we do with those blessings. Whether or not we try to secure our own futures, we offer it up to the Lord and leave it up to him and invite other people in the same eternity we'll share with Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that even in an obscure story that that we really have to think hard to understand, Father, that we see you moving, we see your hand moving in our lives and our hearts. 
Father, as you mold and shape us into those messengers, those vessels that you've called us to be, we pray that we would be drawn into a deeper understanding of who you are and how you function in this world and how it is so antithetical to the way the world functions, Father. That's what sets us apart. That's what makes us unique. That's what makes us a peculiar people. Help us to be that peculiar people, Lord. For your sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your word, for the sake of those souls that are lost. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I'd like to thank you for joining us online. We'll be back again next week. Uh, If you guys have any questions, uh, David and I will be standing over here, especially if you have any questions for, for David Algren as an elder candidate. Thank you, and have a good afternoon. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at wbfva.org. Just click on giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.